Welcome to Love, Lead, Listen, a podcast from Alpha Gamma Delta. I'm your host, Emily Bice. Join us as we discuss topics that affect women of today and examine the ways that we can be women with purpose. Hello, and welcome back to Love, Lead, Listen. In today's episode, we are celebrating Women's History Month, and we have a special guest to help us do so. Today's guest is Fran Beck, who is a fraternity and sorority historian. She has a master's degree from the College Student Personnel Program at Southern Illinois University, Carbondale. Her master's thesis details the history of the fraternity system at SIUC from 1948 to 1960. She also has a PhD from SIUC in Educational Administration and Higher Education. Her thesis was on co-education in the history of women's fraternities from 1868 to 1902. In addition, she has done research at the Student Life Archives and has written several histories of University of Illinois fraternity chapters for the Society of Preservation of Greek Housing. For years, she has run the Focus on Fraternity History Facebook group, which shares fraternity and sorority history with members across the world. She also runs fraternityhistory.com. She is a member of Pi Beta Phi. Fran, welcome. Thank you, Emily. We're so happy to have you. My first question is, Fraternity and sorority history, that's such an interesting field. What led you to doing research here? Well, when I was a member of the chapter of Pi Beta Phi at Syracuse University, I found the old Arrow magazines. They were bound in leather um, and hadn't... And we had nearly a full run going back to the 1890s. And I love to sit and read about the women who came before me in the chapter and in the fraternity. Um, and so I really started my love just looking at those old magazines. And then fast forward a decade or two, and we moved to Carbondale, which um Luckily, they were paying my husband, but there's hardly any spouse jobs, or there were hardly any spouse jobs back then. So after my twins made it to kindergarten, I just started, that's when I started the college student personnel program. And that's when my love, excuse me, really started to come through. And so I learned about the history of your chapter at SIU, and then yeah, and it has it has one of the most interesting histories of any chapter you will find, and that that's probably a, a show for another day. But um, then I decided to work on a PhD, and I did, and it was before the internet and before Google, and so I had to use real books and articles and and just really delve into the history of our organizations because it covered the seven founding NPC groups and what they were doing. So um, it was really a fun exercise to do that, but it just made me want to do more. Yeah. It sounds like you kind of got a taste of it and just kept digging. Yes. But it is such a specialized field that you really can't talk to a whole lot of people about it. So it's nice to be able to have um, kindred spirits that don't whose whose eyes don't start to glaze over after five minutes. Well, that's true. I know I first kind of got interested in it when I read your thesis. So I'm from the Beta Eta chapter at SIUC, and I read your thesis about the history of the chapter. And like you said, it's fascinating just how everything happened and how the chapter formed. 
But again, that is a conversation for another <laughs> another episode. <laughs> so I want to dig in a little bit into the history of sororities in particular. And my understanding is that most of them, specifically the NPC organizations, began when women started attending college in the 19th century. What inspired these women to start sororities? Well, in the 1870s, after the Civil War, I think during the Civil War, a lot of the small colleges admitted women because their money was as good as the men's money. And with the men away fighting, to admit women just made financial sense. But women weren't always welcomed at these colleges and universities um, in the late 1800s. And so they just wanted to share their experience with other women and to be nurtured by other women and to have their accomplishments be celebrated by other women. We need other women. And so a lot of these organizations, if you read their history, there's a point where they say, we'll start a society of our own. And um, a lot of times that's how it happened. And then towards the end of the 1800s, there were no residence halls at any of these early universities and colleges. So women started to live together in houses, in chapter houses. And Alpha Phi at Syracuse was the first to own its own house, but it provided a need that, that wasn't being addressed um, at the college. So it's a little bit of a combination of you need sisters, you need women that are going through this experience with you, but you also need somewhere to live while you're at college. So, you know, that's pretty much how it happened. But there's a, a big span. Um, so that's the, the late 1800 groups. And then the 1900 groups uh, that were founded after the turn of the century, it was, um, you know, the, the model was there. And in the case of Alpha Gamma Delta, Wesley Connington said, we need another women's group. And he sort of led that charge because there was a need and he saw it and your founders accepted that challenge. It's interesting. So there are these first groups that were in the 19th century that kind of kicked it off. They're like the start of them. And then when you get into the 20th century, they're this almost like a second wave where they say, oh, this has been done before. We're going to make our own groups. Is that kind of what happened? Well, that's sort of it. Um, between 1867 and 1881, when Alpha Phi's second chapter was uh, founded at Northwestern, there were only four of today's NPC groups that were expanding beyond the original campus. So they sort of started the system because there'd be more than one group on a campus. And so they had to sort of figure out how to coexist. And um, that started the system. And then it grew from there. And it, they expanded. You know, we think today expansion is, is highly regulated about where you can go and how you can do it. But back then it was a free-for-all. It truly was. And you just needed three or four or five women to start a chapter. It sounds like very different than what we do today. Another topic I want to touch on is that while these women were starting organizations, we do know that many, if not most of these organizations were started originally by white women for white women. Can you tell me what options were available for women of color around this time? Well, unfortunately, um, 
a lot of these organizations were started by white women because there were only white women at those colleges and universities. Sad to say that in 1963, there were less than 50 black students at Syracuse University. And that's in 1963. So imagine how many there might have been in 1904 and 1905. I just read a story about um, a black woman in the 1940s at the University of Vermont, and she was one of two black women at the University of Vermont in the 1940s. Can you imagine? That just doesn't sound plausible to us. There was segregation in higher education. So our organizations were mainly white organizations because of places where we were in the 1870s and 1880s and 1890s and early 1900s. So if you're looking at higher education as it is today and thinking that's how it was when Alpha Gamma Delta was founded at Syracuse, it really wasn't. You have to go back and look at the context of when you were founded. And, you know, there was a sort of parallel. Uh, you've got a lot of the historically black institutions, the historically black colleges and universities, like Howard University, where three of the four National Panhellenic Council sororities were founded. And those were founded in the early 1900s. They got a lot of things right that, that you know, we, the historically white organizations were founded as collegiate organizations, whereas the NPHC groups have graduate chapters. So you can join as a graduate woman, a woman who has her college education. And so there's a lot of community service. There's a lot of life as an alum, as a graduate member of a chapter that we sort of typically say are, although we do all have alum, um, alum opportunities, it's mainly a collegiate organization. You'll get somebody who says, well, I was even, and they're a current member, but they just think of it as something to do in college and not as a lifelong commitment. It sounds like the founding almost brings those chain, those differences in, which is fascinating to think about how even at the beginning that can impact what it, an organization looks like today. So when these women started sororities, like you said, higher education and these organizations were completely different in 1904 than they are today. Do you think they would have imagined what they are? These organizations are today. Oh, they hadn't a clue. Um, I don't. I don't know that our organizations were founded by really young women, for the most part, and um, most of our founders, after the founding left and did other things. They didn't stick around with their hands in business. Now, some did. So it, it is a generalization, but most just went around, you know, they led their lives. They got married, had kids, had a career, whatever. So there were women who came after them, who made decisions, who shaped the organization. We all know the founders. We, we know their names. We think that they're above it all. But it's really the women who came after them who shaped the organization and who are continually shaping the organization, the builders. And I like to say we can all be builders. We can all make the organization better. We can't be a founder. And the founders are gone. 
And in most cases, people who knew the founders are gone. I know in our organization, the oldest members are now people who, are, who were initiated in the 1940s. The 1940s were pretty modern times compared to the 1870s. So no one even realizes what life was like for the founders. The women today who are, who are being initiated this year have been connected to an electronic device for their entire life. Our founders barely had running, you know, had indoor plumbing. The Pi Beta Phi founders did not have indoor plumbing. And if they wanted to correspond with one another, they had to write letters. They couldn't send a text or call. They, things took time. So they hadn't a clue of what life would be like 150 years later. They just, that was beyond their scope. They were young women who did a thing. They got together. They created this organization. But then they went on with their lives. And yes, as they were, in the case of Pi Beta Phi, as they were older, uh, we were founded in 1867. And the first founder did not attend convention until the turn of the century, when she was a rather, you know, middle-aged to older woman. And they were sort of surprised, you know, what had happened to their organization. Now, you had Emily Butterfield, who kept her hand in things and was quite active. But even the people who knew Emily Butterfield are leaving your organization rather quickly maybe joining her somewhere, but she's not around. And the founders, while they're revered, I don't think they had a clue. I don't think they sat down and designed an organization. I think that's fascinating. The story you just said of your one of your founders not attending a convention until years later, that reminds me of, we have so many alumna today that, you know, they graduate college, they say, great, that was fun. And then they take 10, 20 years off sometimes. And then they come back later and they're like, oh, this is this is a different experience. This is a different organization. It reminds me of that. And also just, you're right. It doesn't always dawn on us that these were very young women. I am assuming they would have been in their 20s at the oldest during this time. I can't imagine starting an organization when I was 20 and saying, okay, this will be around 114 years from now. And it's going to be international and it's going to have hundreds of thousands of initiates. I just don't think that would have comprehended to me. We do th sometimes think of them as like these grand visionaries when odds are they're probably more friends that wanted to have an organization together and maybe expand it to a few campuses. But isn't it amazing that it did take off and it did, and it is the organization it is now? I'm sure they're extremely proud and I'm sure they were extremely proud, but just the fact that it happened is amazing. Yes. And like you said, they didn't have texts. They didn't have emails. They had to write letters, especially thinking of expansions. You know, everything's so quick and fast now, but they probably had to, for us, our second expansion, I believe, was in Canada. So they had to go and take a train to Canada to actually do that versus nowadays. We'd send an email to the campus. All that is a lot more digital and fast now. Well, and you can't Google how to start a sorority. You know, they didn't have that. Today, somebody would sit down and say, well, how do I do this? And you'd get a couple of references and you'd ha have an idea and a roadmap. But back then, you didn't. Yeah. Well, this makes me also think of 
na the National Panhellenic Conference in general. And it's a big part of the sorority experience. Can you tell me some of how that organization was founded? Sure. As I said, that between 1867 and 1881, there were only four groups that were expanding, but they had to figure out how to live together because they were all looking for the same type of women. And so recruitment, or rush as it was known then, because they'd rush down to the train station and try to get the women, they'd, they'd hear about people, you know, this person's cousin was coming, this person's friend was coming, and they tried to get them as soon as they could off the train and um, keep them away from the other groups so that they could offer them membership in their organization. And so after 1881, when Alpha Phi and Gamma Phi started and, and other groups started joining them, people said, well, we need to figure this out because we have to work together. And on some campuses, they would have compacts, as they call them, that had some rules and regulations. But in 1891, there was a first meeting called in Boston. And that meeting was rather unsuccessful because they wanted to really micromanage where they ordered jewelry and stationery. And I think it was a fun time for all of them, but I think it, it nothing happened except, you know, a day at the Columbian World's Fair in Chicago in 1893 is basically what came out of that. Again, in um, 1902, those seven same groups were invited. Uh, Chi Omega and Alpha Chi Omega were invited, but couldn't make it. And they met in Chicago and you know, it clicked that they had to work together for them to exist on campuses. And so from 1902 until the present day, NPC has been a large part of the sorority experience. You know, after all, who understands us better than each other? Absolutely. It's almost like a, a camaraderie of sisters, but just across organizations. You know, and after all, we all, I like to say it in the Brand back view of the world, that we are the same organization, that when you strip away all those exterior kinds of things, the flowers, the badge, we all believe in the same things. We want our members to be the very best college they can be, the very best member they can be, the very best citizen they can be. And uh, we are the same organization. So I think sometimes when people get so wrapped up in, oh, I want to be this or I don't want to be anything, they're, they're not seeing that big picture. Well, my next question is that we know that through the hundred some odd years that these organizations have been around, it has not been smooth sailing the whole time. Can you tell me about some of the challenges that these groups have faced over the years? Well, we tend to think that. Um, you know, uh, the abolished Greek life movement is something new when truly it isn't. Since our very beginnings, there have been um, places that did not want uh, fraternities and sororities. Uh, Anti-fraternity sentiment has been with us since the very beginning. We've weathered a lot of storms, the depression, when money was very tight for some women and, you know, they couldn't afford to be members, and there were less women going to college because the families couldn't afford to, you know, if a family had the choice between sending a son or a daughter to college, it was the son who went. 
because he would need to earn a living and the daughter would, you know, be married in, in, in most people's thought process in a situation like that. So there are people who have such horrible views about our organizations. They lump us all together. There's one bad apple and we're all rotten. And and so it just takes one stupid person doing something stupid and we're all painted with that same brush. So it's hard. You know, when I tell people what I do, you know, I can tell when somebody, you know, they just write me off right then and there because they had some experience. They just don't like fraternities and sororities. They've seen, they've seen Animal House 15 times and that's how it is. You know, it's just, it's with us. And, and we always have to try to talk about the good things we do. We have to atone for the stupid things that stupid people do. It's not easy being a member of our organizations because, you know, we have this history of a lot of things that are unfortunate. That is true. Another piece of sorority and fraternity history that I think we get caught up a lot in is traditions and how this went to our organizations. And so my question is, when we talk about the traditions of our organizations, we're usually talking about that in the context of our history. Is there a difference between our traditions and our history, or do they kind of go together? Traditions is a really tough word for me, because in a lot of situations, tradition is what you did last year. And I don't know if kids still play telephone, but it was a camp game where you'd line up in two lines and somebody would say something, uh, a phrase or a sentence, and it, you'd have to tell it to the next person and the next person and the next person. And then at the end of the line, you know, you would find that what got down the line was so totally different than what was said to the first person. And that's how I see tradition, because things will change. And, and so when it a chapter member says, well, it's our tradition, or we've always done it this way. I like to say, no, probably not. That's not how it works. Um, things get changed. And history is the sum total of what occurred in an organization, be it a chapter or be it the organization themselves. It's multifaceted. It's the good, the bad, and the ugly. How did we get to where we are today? That's the history. And traditions, I think, is just a, a cheap cop-out on a lot of things. If you say it's tradition, then it's, un, you know, then it's okay. When, no, it really isn't. And so things need to be examined on a case-by-case -case basis. Just because it's something that the chapter or the organization has always done, you know, we're not still writing letters to one another. You know, things have evolved. So. I just, you know, traditions, I just say phooey. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, but then th then there are things that, you know, it's nice to have links to the people who came before you. So you need to be cognizant of what what is positive and what is not. It's all about balance. It is. It is. Well, Fran, if someone's feeling inspired to research the history of their organization, what resources would you recommend for them? Oh, the first thing I would recommend um, are the magazines of the organization. They are just a treasure trove of discoveries. And 
a good many of them are available on the internet and they're always fun to read. And especially when you can read about your own chapter. Until about the 1970s, all the magazines looked very much alike and they all had chapter letters. So each year the chapter correspondent was uh, required to write a letter about what the chapter did either on a six month basis or on a yearly basis. So you can look, it's always fun to find famous people in there or to find relatives of other people. Um, I'm a first generation, so I don't, I can't find any relatives in, in, our, in any of the magazines, but I've helped friends find pictures of their grandmothers. And, uh, you know, it's always nice to find a connection. I love the magazines and I look at them uh, for Women's History Month. I try to do a profile of uh, a woman from each organization who did something notable. But I, I try to avoid the really notable people. I try to avoid, I try to look for a woman who did something that was a little extraordinary for her time. And so I look through a lot of these magazines and I've just fallen in love with people. And I've just wanted to know more about some of these people. And I think that, you know, if you just sit down with an issue of a magazine from, say, 1907, 1908, 1922, you'll find something in there that just makes you want to find more. Mm -hmm. Makes you want to dig a little deeper. Yes. Well, Fran, we're at the end of our episode, and we like to ask our guests all this one question, which is, what is your purpose? I just want to make women especially, but members of our organizations realize that they are just one tiny little link in this one long chain. And if we're going to be here in another hundred years, then all of our members need to do their part to make, to build the organization into a better organization. I love that. Well, if our listeners want more of your content or more of your more of you in general, where should they go? Fraternityhistory.com. Great. And then you also have the Facebook page where you're, you post pretty regularly in there as well, right? Mm -hmm. Usually links to the fraternityhistory.com. Okay. Fantastic. So we will have that on our website, like with all of our guests. So if you're interested in seeing more of Fran's work, go check that out. Thank you so much for being here today. This was a fantastic conversation and a great way to celebrate Women's History Month. Well, thank you, Emily. I enjoyed it. Love, Lead, Listen is recorded and produced at Alpha Gamma Delta International Headquarters and is generously funded by the Alpha Gamma Delta Foundation. Episodes are released every two weeks, so make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss out on any of our episodes. If you like this show, make sure to rate us five stars on iTunes and don't forget to share it with your friends. If you have an idea for a future episode or any other feedback, send us an email at podcast at alphagammadelta.org. I'm your host, Emily Bice, and that's all for today. See you next time.